Hello, everyone. I am Dan Nathan. This is Guy Adami. You might recognize him from CNBC's Fast Money. I also do that fine program with him. We recognize that this is the lunch hour, but I've been here moderating a couple panels throughout the day, and we thought, you know what? Guy and I, every day, Monday through Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern, we do something we call the market call, and we're like, why wouldn't we do it from here? We'll talk a little bit about the markets, what's roiling them, uh, the economy, and, and some of the cross currents that we're seeing, and how this might all affect some of the people out here in the audience um, who are very focused on a lot of these inputs that you know are going to affect major business decisions at all your companies and how you guys um, choose to spend. So, Guy Adami, welcome to Zeta Live. I've been here all morning, and it's been a fabulous event. How you doing, buddy? I, this is, I mean, I'm usually the least cool person in a room, but I'm clearly the least cool person in this room. So it's great to be here, and thanks. And we want to talk about what's roiling the markets and what's changed over the last six or seven months, because for the layperson that doesn't watch this every second of every day, clearly something has changed since the fall of last year. No doubt about it. I mean, you and I, um, we are charged with speaking about what's going on in the markets, but also kind of demystifying a little bit about how stuff in the economy affects the markets, how it affects people's finances in general. Um, and, you know, right now, we're, guy, we're in one of those periods where it feels like a lot of different pieces of someone's financial puzzle are all kind of coming together. We're seeing the stock market lower. We're seeing housing start to roll over. We're seeing interest rates go higher. Um, you know, we've seen all of these inflationary inputs. I mean, this is all coming together right now. Put in some context how you think about what the current environment is, economic environment relative to past periods leading into, let's say, you know, uh, recessions or bear markets. You know, what's changed for me over the last eight or nine months, and if you watch Fast Money or CNBC, you'll know that I'm not the biggest Fed lover. As a matter of fact, I've said, and I'll say here to you folks, amongst the many villains of the 21st century, and there are many, central bankers are gonna be at sort of the top of that list, and not because they're bad people, but history is littered with disastrous outcomes born of good intentions. And if you indulge me for a second, Dan. As I do. October 8th, 1871 was the day of the great Chicago fire. On that day was a fire in Peshtigo, Wisconsin. And to this day, it was the deadliest fire in the history of the United States. Depending on what textbook you read, anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 people died. And Born from that fire was the National Forestry Service, and their task was fire sequestration. Why? Because fires are destructive, uh, they're unsightly, and obviously in this case they're deadly. So if they could somehow tamp down these forest fires, we would be better for it. And they were able to do that for a period of time, but what they learned is a forest fire is a natural part of the cycle. And in order for new trees to grow, old trees need to burn down. And trees that had been impervious to fire were now falling victims. So again, great intentions, disastrous outcomes. I mention that because in the 1980s, Alan Greenspan came up with this great idea that, wait a second, I can alchemy out the recession part of the business cycle. And he was right. And for a period of time, that worked. But I'm going to be 59 years old. And when I was a kid, there was a commercial it's not nice to fool with Mother Nature. And that's what they were trying to do. And Mother Nature will get his or her revenge at some point. And again, that's what we're seeing now. I think we're paying for the missteps of excess of 13 years of central bank largesse, not only here in the United States, 
but across the world, and it's all coming to a head at the same time in history. Well, did you say 13 or 30? I mean, when you think about it, it goes back really to when Greenspan took over in the 80s and this kind of new posture that they had towards this. And, you know, we spent some time, I moderated a couple panels this morning with um, some VCs, some practitioners in the marketing space, some investors. You know, I mean, what's really interesting to me is that, you know, 2020, you know, no one saw that coming. That is the definition of what we call in our business a black swan event, right? And so I, you've heard a lot of investors speak to it as a black hole. And so when the Federal Reserve that guy is just talking about lowered interest rates to zero, that was their playbook for every crisis leading up to that in the prior two decades or so. And then we had all this fiscal stimulus and none of it stopped and it kept on going. And we saw, you know, a time where a lot of you were like thinking about budget decisions and where to cut costs and, and, and all this sort of stuff. You know, all of a sudden it went from being really defensive in 2020 to being really uh, like playing on the offense. And so we saw a lot of, I guess what you'd say, irrational yes. um, behavior, right? And so this is kind of what you're talking about. This is what we're, pl- uh, you know, we're paying for now in an economy that is about as uncertain guy as I think you and I take out the pandemic as that you and I can remember. And let's talk about the reason for that. It's gotta be that if the Fed's playbook was always to lower interest rates, now they're dealing with a different boogeyman and it's inflation and now they are raising interest rates. And we just saw you know, Fed funds above 3% for the first time, the 10-year US Treasury yield about 4% in a very long time, 30-year mortgage mm-hmm. topping 7%, doubled in the last year. So. Put that in some context here. Well, we've never seen it in the history of this country. I mean, the speed, the magnitude of which things have moved, people are dealing with it now. So it's not the absolute rate. We've clearly been able to live with interest rates at these levels historically. It's the speed with which we've gotten here. I think it's caught a lot of people off guard. Zero interest rates, free money makes everybody look like a genius. I mean, I even look smart under that situation. Even you. But it's not the case. And now people are learning the other side of that equation. The other thing that free money does in zero interest rates, it makes people lazy. Yeah. And it makes corporate America lazy. And what do I mean by that? Companies don't really have to focus on their business. You buy back your stock, you pay a dividend, the stock goes higher, you look really smart, and you're not focused on really what's going on beneath the surface. Now, as the world has changed quickly and precipitously, people now need to focus on their business. This happens to be a very good thing, by the way. The problem is the pain to get to the other side is what we're feeling right now. And it's not gonna end anytime soon. So I'm not playing stock market here, but you see the gyrations of the stock market on a day-to-day basis. And since November, when the Fed's playbook changed, that's when the tenor of the market changed. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, I think it's uh, for a lot of you who um, you know spend a lot of time, whether you know your company that you're at is a publicly traded stock, it's probably um, you know a trades at a, a valuation that is a premium to let's say the the S and P 500. You feel the fact that when interest rates go higher, the value of your company goes lower, having nothing to do with the core of your business. And it's just simple math if you think about it that way. And we just haven't been in that period. Um, for a very long time. All right, so Guy, you just mentioned that, okay, the Fed turned course late last year to battle inflation. Tech stocks in particular, um, high valuation risk assets really started to turn well before, let's say the stock market felt kind of ugly. Let's put some context into 
what you think is going on with the economy and what the markets are saying. Because a lot of people, they think about them as a monolith, as one thing, but they're very different things. And oftentimes, they can be telling you very different things at which stage you are in a cycle. Jerome Powell, sometime in 2019-20, was asked a question about the stock market. And I'm paraphrasing, so forgive me. But he said something to the effect of, in a zero interest rate environment, valuations really don't matter. And actually, that's true. Nobody cares about valuations, and nobody cared about valuations up until November, December, January of this year. When the world changes, people start to focus on it. Now, for example, and I'm not looking to play stock market here, but NVIDIA is a great company. It's a groundbreaking company. They're well ahead of the curve in terms of what they're doing. In November of last year, that was going to be the next $1 trillion market cap company. Not by their fault. The market participants bid that stock up to those levels. So the move 65% lower or thereabouts has nothing to do with NVIDIA, the company. They didn't forget how to do what they're doing. It's just the market coming to the realization that, hey, wait a second, those valuations made no sense. So what has changed? The focus on valuations in a rising interest rate environment. The economy is what it is. And, you know, I say it all the time, when the market was doing well, the chasm between the market and the real economy had never been wider. Now we seem to be narrowing that gap. And as painful as it is, it's an important part. Yeah. So when you think about that, uh, you know, on a stock, single stock level, I mean, you just mentioned NVIDIA, which was a $700 billion market cap company. It is a hardware company for all intents and purposes, was trading north of like 30 times sales. I mean, in, in our lifetimes, we've never really seen that sort of valuation on that sort of metric. The flip side of that, and Guy said that was what investors were willing to pay for that company or for that stock. On the flip side of that, there's Meta, okay? So yep. a year ago this time, it was called Facebook. The ticker was FB. Now the ticker is META, um, and they changed the name. That was also a $750 billion market cap company. It did not suffer from some of the same valuation ills that NVIDIA did, but that stock is also down 60% on the year. And you think about it. These are hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap that investors got wrong in just less than a year. I mean, like, like really wrong. So how can we be in a stock market where that, where that sort of divergence can happen and so many people who are so loaded up on these sorts of stocks, how can they be this wrong guy? Yeah, well, a lot of it has to do with sort of this advent of passive investing, which became sort of de rigueur over the last decade or so. And, you know, when the market's going higher, passive, passive investing is great. Because things, you know, everything seems to be going high. Everybody feels smart about things. My concern all along has been when passive investing becomes active, it's not going to be active on the way up. It's going to be people getting out of things that yeah. they didn't even realize that they own. So the world has definitely changed a little bit. In terms of medicines, you brought it up. A lot of their problems were self-inflicted wounds without question. And you're talking about a company that makes sense on valuation, absolutely. But you also see the other side of this. Uh, the other side of the frenzy is what we're feeling now. There's the old saying on Wall Street, the market takes the stairs up and the escalator down. Yeah. And you're seeing that exactly play out before our very eyes. That's the elevator down, people. Um, the elevator down. Escalator up, stairs elevator up, down. Elevator down. You said escalator. I think he said escalator. We'll go to the videotape. Um, you know what uh, I no, meant. No, but what's really... you got to call me out in front of these people. Sorry. I just want to... Johnson move. We're, we're going to... By the way, I got a great story for you people. I mean, so Erin Burnett is a dear friend of mine. I don't know if you watch CNBC. She was there, one of the first people I met at the network. And there was a guy that used to come on the network. 
His name was Hugh, H-U-G-H, Johnson. And she introduces him one day, and I'm watching this on TV live, and she goes, I'd like to bring on Hugh Johnson right now as our guest. And I, my face dropped, so I immediately, I'm, Aaron, I don't know if you know what you just did, but you just called this guy Hugh Johnson, which I just did to you here you, in front of these people. And I was a Hugh Johnson. But I think the point of that prior story is that, you know, one was what investors were willing to pay. Right. The other one was mis-execution, and sometimes you can have the same result in the stock market. Is that fair? That's actually a really good segue. Um, Aaron Burnett was on CNBC a day in August of 2007. And she was on with Jim Cramer. Mm -hmm. Remember this? And this is like, if you just Google it, it's going to come up immediately and it's had millions and millions of views. But Jim Cramer, you know, was going crazy. It was like two in the afternoon and it was like a Friday and the stock market was just, we were still in a bull market. The stock market did not top out until November of 2007. But Kramer is sitting there throwing things and, and more so than usual, That's right? That's the they know nothing rant. He was, was actually yelling about the Fed 15 years ago that they weren't doing easy monetary policy at the time because some of the plumbing in the financial system was starting to make him and some other people a little nervous. Now it's really interesting, the prodding on national TV to try to get the US yep. Federal Reserve Chair to do something to ease monetary policy. Look at what's going on right now. Now listen, that was months before the stock market topped out and it was almost two years to when the stock market bottomed out. The S&P 500 got cut in half from the November 2007 highs to the March 2009 lows. Now what's going on is that we have a Fed who's only had one pitch, right, for 20 years or so, and they're doing the exact opposite. And that's the thing, I guess, if you listen to Guy and myself and Danny Moses on our podcast on the tape, please check it out, people, or you watch us Monday through Thursday at one o'clock live um, on Market Call. I mean, we're not trying to be perma anything, and I want you to explain this a little bit. We're trying to kind of point some things out that we've seen over time, a little pattern recognition, but also sometimes go a little bit against the conventional wisdom. So talk to us a little bit about that. It's interesting. So you get labeled certain things. I think we have a society of lazy people. This audience is obviously the exception to that rule, but as in general, people make quick decisions and you get labeled. So Dan is labeled the perma bear, or I'm always negative Nancy or something like that. And it's just not true. It's very easy to go on network TV every day with the pom-poms out, say everything's great, the market's gonna go higher. There are no ramifications necessarily if things go pear-shaped because you're in it with everybody else. Everybody's bullish, that's great. You're American, you're waving the flag. I've had people tell me it's unpatriotic to be bearish or to point out some of the things that go wrong. That's just the world that we live in. So we're just trying to show the other side of what a lot of people will say. You know, sometimes on the network, if you watch, anytime you hear the word opportunity, I can say without equivocation that the, world, the word before it will be buying. It's always a buying opportunity. And again, really no ramifications for that because at the end of the day, five, 10 years later, you're gonna to prove to be correct. You never hear selling opportunity. The world's changed over the last eight or nine months. And as it turns out, November, December, January was a selling opportunity. Now you have to look at the world and say, okay, where are we? What do valuations look like? What's the economy look like? What's the global economy look like? And when is this Federal Reserve gonna stop? And more importantly, what's gonna be the catalyst for them to stop? Yeah. And the catalyst, I mean, is likely to be a very like, quickly weakening economy. And you know, we know that 
the issues in China, um, the lockdowns that continue there. We know that the disrupted supply chains, we know the crazy moves that are going on in currencies. We have a shooting war in Eastern Europe that is disrupting energy supplies. And really what that's going to do is really crimp consumer spending, right? If you're spending more to heat your home, you have to make decisions about that. So these are all things that are, are kind of really tied yeah. in. And sometimes, you know, the stock market or the FX market or the commodities market, <clears throat> these are the lenses in which these, the, these things are playing out, which for us makes sense to think about them. That's all we've ever done professionally. But I want to bring it back to some of the people in the audience here because you have to make kind of real-time decisions about how you're deploying capital, whether it be for building your brand, acquiring customers. I mean, things that are really important to kind of growing your, your revenues, right? And ultimately, hopefully, your earnings if you're not there yet. And so, you know, Guy, we talk about this all the time. When we hear the term peak as it relates to markets, as it relates to the economy, I actually think of it as not a bullish thing. When I hear about peak margins, you know, S&P 500 earnings, um, at, you know, margins have just you know, hit an all-time high. Talk a little bit about that because one of the things about inflation is that all of these inputs that are causing companies' profit margins to be lower than they were a year ago, ultimately, companies with pricing power, as you guys know, will be able to pass through a certain amount right. of those increased costs. Others, over time, will not be able to do. And then they have to make decisions about how they're spending their money. So it's interesting. You know, it's CMOs or when you're in that seat, when things are going really well, and, and again, not directed to anybody in this audience, but this, this is across a swath of things, you don't have to be discerning, right? You can just sort of throw money at different things because it doesn't matter. When things start to get a little dicey and things go a bit pear-shaped, you have to be a bit more focused. That happens to be a good thing, right? Focusing on where you're spending your money and what makes sense and where you're going to get your return on investment. So that's the, I think that's the environment that we find ourselves in right now. In terms of peak, when you turn on a television here, you know, peak margins, peak earnings, you're right. I mean, that sounds like a great thing, but if you think about it by definition, you get to the top of Everest, there's no place else to go. Yeah. You got to go back down, and that's what we're seeing right now. So it's painful getting there. I made this analogy the other night. You actually jumped in really well. I asked Melissa Lee, you know, you go to brunch, what do you order? An omelet, and how do you get, what do you do before that omelet? You said get three mimosas. It was actually a great line by you, but... You have to break a few eggs, and yeah. we're in the breaking a few eggs portion of the omelet. So, so it's interesting, and I think that there's probably a lot of diverging views in, in, among the audience here on that front. You know, in a couple of panels that I was on this morning, I mean, when you're talking about what's different this time is that you just use the term ROI, right? And especially when it comes to marketing dollars. I mean, like, we're here at Zeta Live, and that's the point of this business. That's why it exists, right? To kind of help publishers, help advertisers help brands kind of figure out how they're spending, right, and, and, and how effective it is. And I think you could apply that to technology across a lot of different business processes. And that's why, again, you know, you might find ourselves after a recession that needs to come through the normal course of like, you know, you know, capitalistic cycles, you know, companies become more productive, right? And so Guy and I think about it through the stock market, you see companies that have leverage and get that sort of stuff. So talk, talk a little bit about that because, again, you know, trying to figure out what the next big winners are in a market is really hard to do, but the way companies kind of execute in bad times or difficult times is really important. Really important. And if you listen, to very, some of the most successful entrepreneurs, um, CEOs, they will tell you, and I've heard him or her say these things over the last year or so, that 
as painful as it was working through COVID and trying to deal with it and navigate it, it was so important to their business because it really forced them to take a very critical look at what they were doing. And you start to run your businesses better. And I'll give you a real life example in terms of what we're seeing in the energy space. I mean, big oil, obviously, in this country was, you say what you want, I mean, was clearly had a bullseye on their collective back. ESG investing came in. It almost forced them by definition to run their businesses better. Now these energy companies are as well run and as well capitalized as they've ever been, but they needed to go through a difficult time to get there. So again, for you folks, we are now living, you lived through it during COVID, now you're living it through a market cycle, but it will make you better, I think, in the long run, and I think it'll make your businesses better as well. Yeah, that's true. Hey, I just want to give a heads up. If anyone has um, a question, because these mics are like this, you can just, just give me a, a high sign and, and ask uh, CNBC's Fast Money Guy Dami a question. So Guy, you've been doing Fast Money for what, 37 years? So Dan likes breaking my balls. You know, it's really funny. I am the old guy in the room. Okay, just full disclosure, I will be 59 years old okay. in December. Right, so it's not Actually, just so you know, I mean, since you brought it up, I would, Brad Pitt and I share the same birthday, and I guarantee he's somewhere in Soho right now saying, Guy Adami and I share the same birthday. Uh, he's, but please continue. And, and he's not doing that. Um, but, uh, you know, Guy, I don't know if you noticed, he, he was limping on his way up to this podium, and I just saw Brad Pitt. Yeah, all right. So, yeah, okay. So, you're another funny guy. So, I was in Sicily, not Italy, Sicily. We were there for 10 days. My wife and I had our 25-year anniversary. We went to Mount Etna. If you haven't been, I encourage you to go. It's just a stunning place. But we get to the lava fields, and I take a bad step, and I literally almost I thought I broke my ankle. Kind of the worst place in, in the, the world, world to take yeah. a bad step. Yeah, well, that's at a, at a lava field. story of my life. But yeah. since so now it's a little swollen, it's coming down. But yeah, you know, my wife actually said to me in the airport a couple days later, "Do you want me to get one of those wheelchairs?" And I said, "I'd rather effing die than uh, get in a wheelchair in an airport. I'm not going to be that person." Just so you know. But you brought it up. Yeah, I did. Um, all right, let's just kind of like take a couple topics here because I think a lot of people, um, you know, who are not staring at their fact set machine yeah. every day, you know, they think about the Dow Jones Industrial Average. We don't really quote that. That is um, not a particularly useful index. It's uh, 30 stocks and it's price weighted. Um, you know, the S&P 500 is 500 stocks and it's market cap weighted. And really fascinating today, Apple is the largest market cap company in the world. It was nearly uh, $3 trillion. Mm -hmm. um, we've never had a market cap company of that size before. Today, the stock is down on a brokerage company's downgrade 5%. You do the math on $2.3 trillion market cap. You know, you know how many companies in the S&P 500, so it's down $100 billion. Do you know how many companies in the S&P 500 have a market cap of $100 billion? I think it's less than 50. Yeah. Is that correct? So, so we live in a world now where your financial assets, whether it's your 401ks or your IRAs or whatever you're choosing to kind of um, invest on a short-term basis, you know, they're subject, and Guy used the expression of passive investing. I mean, the top five or six stocks in the S&P 500 make up nearly 30% of the weight of this index of 500 stocks. Those same five or six stocks make up more than 40-some percent of the NASDAQ 100. Talk about that a little bit, because when, when the people out here, they, they, you know, they, they hear the Dow, but they're really invested in Apple yeah. and Google. And Apple, whether they uh, realize Tesla, it or not, I mean, yeah. whether you realize you own these stocks or not, if you're in the market in some capacity, chances are you do. And it's interesting just to do that exercise at some point to try to understand what, in fact, you do own. And again, not to cast dispersions, Apple's an amazing company, and you'll hear people say you own Apple for the long term, you don't trade it. 
Meanwhile, Apple's a company that over the last five or six years has had 30 to 40% peak to trough declines, I think five or six different times, and we're seemingly in the midst of one now. So Apple is not impervious to market downturns as well. What's interesting is, though, and I've, I've learned this over the years, and I knew it intuitively, if you ask somebody, would you be willing to own Apple, if Apple is trading $170, and I said you can own Apple at 142, people would say, sign me up. Then it gets to 142, and the reasons that it got there are typically scarier than they thought they'd be, and everybody sort of backs up. One thing that's made me quasi-successful over the years, and I use quasi, is that I really don't, I'm not that emotional. I mean, as human beings, we're emotional animals, great things. Your daughter does really well in school. You have a great day. Bad things, maybe somebody dies in the family. So we're this sine curve of emotions. For whatever reason, I've never really lived that life. I'm sort of a flat line, as you've gotten to know over the last 15 or so years, which makes me a really shitty human being, but it makes me decent at what we do because it's so important to take the motion out of the equation when you're looking at these things. So if you have a plan in investing and whatever it is, it's that old saying, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Well, it's true in trading as well. So if Apple, for example, since you brought it up, is a name you've been dying to own, you sort of plant your flag in the ground and say, if it trades here, I don't give a shit if the sun is exploding, yeah. I'm going to buy the stock. Yeah, so let's just put some context around where the, the stock market is. We get this question all the time from people who are not in it every day like us, staring at the screens and investing and trading. Trading and investing, two very different things. I'm sure you guys have all learned that the hard way a little bit. But when you think about where we are right now, the S&P 500 topped out in January 2nd of this year, um, and it's down, what, 24% mm -hmm. or so. The NASDAQ 100 is down about 31 32%. And so, you know, no one's declared that the U.S. economy is in a recession yet, uh, clearly in a recessionary environment, um, and we're very likely to be in one in 2023. And to Guy's earlier point, a recession, it, it's just, it's not a four-letter word. It's not, I mean, I would think many of you people in, in, who are operators at companies, it actually will provide a very unique opportunity to cut some fat to kind of rejigger some of the things mm -hmm. that you were, you know, like, like there's going to be a lot of opportunities to kind of get more um, efficient. But as it relates to the stock market, no one knows where it's going to go. Um, but the average kind of stock market decline from a high during a recession has been about 30% in the, in the post-war era. And if you take out the 2020 decline, it was a recession, it was a bear market, it happened very quickly during the pandemic, it was 35% peak to trough. But you gotta remember this, the Federal Reserve and the US Treasury threw $4 trillion at that, $4 trillion. At the time, I think the US stock markets, okay, let's think in its totality, guy, did it get as low as like 22, $23 trillion or something when it was down 35%. So the average peak to trough decline is 30%, and if you look at the post-com highs from 2000, to the lows in 02, the highs in 07 during the financial crisis, to the lows in 09, the S&P 500 got cut in half. So Guy, the question, it's a trillion dollar question, what's different this time? How do we get out of something? We can't do what we did in 2020, we can't throw trillions of dollars at it. It's global now also, okay? What's different this time? Why is it that the S&P could bottom anywhere near where we are right now, down 25 Well, what's different this time is right now, U.S. debt to GDP was, I think we peaked at around 140-something percent, levels we've never seen in the history. Global debt to GDP, it's some absurd rate. So you have this global debt problem that in a rising interest rate environment, it's very difficult to extricate yourself from. So 
that's different this time. Inflation, which has not been a problem anywhere on the planet other than Venezuela and Zimbabwe, is clearly the problem now. If you want to look proof positive, the numbers out of Germany, which is the fifth largest economy in the world this morning, were eye-opening. And, you know, there are a lot of central banks that need to do a lot of work to sort of cut. There are people in Europe right now, there are people in Germany, and I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, it just happens to be true. They're going to have to make a decision in a couple months. Do I heat my home or do I feed my family? I mean, that's pretty existential shit, and that's what's going on right before our very eyes. So you can cast blame all you want. You can say it's Putin's inflation and all that stuff. We were headed down this road regardless. That just sort of sped things up. So that's what's different this time. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, well, listen, we appreciate all this market talk. I just wanted to hit one other thing that you guys might find interesting here. Um, and, you know, one of the themes that I, at least I've heard this morning upstairs in some of the panels is like, okay, things are uncertain. It's, a, it's an odd market. You got to really figure out how you're spending, where you're spending from a marketing perspective. You know, Guy and I, and maybe you guys will find this kind of interesting, you know, Guy and I were not meant to be media people. We were traders. Guy came up at Drexel Burnham and Goldman, and I started on the hedge fund side of the business and worked at a big bank and we just happened to find our way at CNBC trying to do what we do here and it's been an amazing um, opportunity for us you've been doing it for 15 years I've been doing it for 13 years but you know a couple years be like right before the pandemic actually you and I started thinking about doing some direct-to-consumer yep. content, right? And then as the you know the pandemic happened and no one knew what was going to happen and we were doing our show remote from our living rooms, that sort of thing, Guy and I started a company called Risk Reversal Media and we said, hey, listen, you know, TV is amazing. That, that, that outlet is amazing. But like, you know, when you think about social media and you think of the connectivity and you think about, um, you know, all of this idea about creating communities and that sort of thing, we were like, you know what? We have so many people, hundreds of people, uh, you know, a day tweet at us when we're on TV. Let's kind of figure out how to do this where a, a viewer can get a more personal relationship with the content where they feel like they're part of it rather than being spoken to on a TV. So we started a podcast called On the Tape. We have a partner named Danny Moses, a guy who's prominently featured in the big short. We do that once a week. People like the long form thing. They want to like walk their dog and, and listen to us for 45 minutes. Or we do this live streaming thing that we're we're doing right now market call that comes to YouTube live Twitter live you know that sort of thing and so we just think it's really fun we've had this amazing opportunity to partner with amazing brands CME group it's the largest futures exchange in the world 65 billion dollar market cap company um, SoFi tasty trade back set is an amazingly you know we use all of their products we've been using their products for 20 plus years and they've entrusted us with their brand to yeah. be adjacent to our content. Speak to that really Well, quickly. what's interesting is it's not performance-based. I mean, they want the proximity, whatever word you use. You know, they want to be associated with the brands that we've been creating and they found it to be really accretive for what they're trying to do as well. And it's been a great partnership and we've had now these companies sign up for not only the remainder of this year, but for the remainder of next year as well. So they're obviously finding some value in what we do. So, and, and I think it is helpful. What we try to do, the mistake that I think a lot of people make, and I don't have to make this mistake because I'm not that smart in the first place, always trying to prove how bright they are. But the people that can synthesize very difficult, esoteric, you know, sometimes boring topics and make them accessible to people, those are the ones that are getting it done. And I think to a large extent, 
that's what we've been trying to do. Yeah, I, I just thought that you guys might find that an interesting anecdote again. And we still do fast money. We're going to do it tonight, and we love it. And you know, the people we meet, the topics we get to talk to, the exposure it gives us is amazing. We just think it's a great barbell approach, and that we think this is where media is going, and we think this is where brand sponsorship is also going. So. Listen, thank you to David Steinberg and his whole team at Zeta for having us here. I've really enjoyed being here today and, and being participating in these panels. And amazing to have Guy Adami here with me at Zeta Live for Market Call Live. So thank you guys very much for being Thanks, here. Thanks, everyone.